Good morning. We are continuing our sermon series going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're coming near the end as we only have a few weeks left. This past Thursday, uh, as I was working on the sermon preparation, I was sitting next to Carl DeArmond, who's pastor of Machias Community Church. And he saw that I was working on this sermon. And he saw that I was working on a sermon from the book of Ecclesiastes. And so he looked at me and he said, you're a brave man. And lest he think I'm more brave than I really am, I said to him, it wasn't my choice. <laughs> the book of Ecclesiastes is indeed challenging to understand, but might I suggest to you that that is a good thing. The book of Ecclesiastes is included in what we refer to as the wisdom literature of the Bible. Now, when people think of the wisdom literature of the Bible, probably they think first about the book of Proverbs. And the reason they think first about the book of Proverbs is because a large portion of the book of Proverbs is made up of wise sayings. Wise sayings that are meant to help us live the good life. Live the life of honor and integrity. Live the life of flourishing and prosperity. Most of all, live the life that honors God. But in case we are tempted to interpret the wise sayings of Proverbs as a set of guarantees or a set of promises... The book of Ecclesiastes comes along and says, not so fast. There are not a set of rules that if you follow will guarantee good outcomes. There are not a set of proverbs that if you rightly apply will guarantee a blessed life. And we have seen that throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. For example, in chapter 7, verse 15, the preacher of Ecclesiastes said, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Again in 8.14 he wrote, There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. And in chapter 9 verses 2 and 3 he wrote, It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. He went on in chapter 9, verse 11 to say, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, the preacher of Ecclesiastes observed the great equalizer. In chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, he said, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was, a grievous, was grievous to me. For all is vanity in a striving after the wind. 
Death is the great equalizer. We will all die. But if you have been here during this sermon series, you have learned that the point of Ecclesiastes is not to ultimately and finally cause us to despair. But I'm pretty sure the preacher of Ecclesiastes is okay if we despair for a little while. You see, the path of despair that he takes us on is meant to help us arrive at the place where we need to be. The preacher says some shocking things as if to get our attention, to shake us out of our stupor, to cause us to step back from the day-to-day activities of our lives and ask the big questions. Ecclesiastes helps us to have a right understanding of the sinful and broken world in which we live. It helps us to know how we are to live our lives in this sinful and broken world. It helps us to be honest with the hard realities of this life, yet not forsake that which is good and right. It delivers us from putting our hope in the wrong place so that we will put our hope in him who does not disappoint. So with that in mind, let's pick up in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. This morning we're going to go through Ecclesiastes chapter 10, beginning in verse 8 through chapter 11, Verse 6. Let's read the passage. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, beginning in verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stone is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way of the spirit, the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. In our passage, we see 
the reality of pain and uncertainty on the one hand and the value of wisdom and action on the other hand. The passage begins by describing several types of labor that, labor that come with inherent danger. The preacher described one who digs a pit, one who tears down a wall, one who quarries stone, and one who splits logs. He was not describing men who were taking malicious actions. He was not describing those who were trying to harm others. He was simply describing men who were doing their jobs. They were going about their work. And what do each of these men described in verses 8 and 9 have in common? Something bad happened to them. They suffered harm. They suffered injury. They were endangered simply by going about their work. The preacher provides us with an observation regarding the difficulty and seemingly unfair nature of our experiences in this life. Sometimes accidents happen. And they happen unexpectedly from our perspective. When I was 19 years old, I had a friend named Brock who died suddenly and tragically in a work-related accident. The Seattle Times reported on the incident in June of 2000. The article wrote, Brock O'Connor, 19, a popular former all-star baseball player for Issaquah High School, was killed Thursday when he was crushed by heavy equipment he was operating at a Kent construction site. My friend Brock was a 19-year-old who had a good job. He was working hard, earning an income. At the same time, he was going to school. He was doing what is commendable. We would all look at a 19-year-old such as Brock and say, what you are doing is good and right. You're going to school and you're working hard. A good job earning money. And yet what happened? Unexpectedly, he had an accident with the equipment that he was operating that suddenly took his life. He had a mom and dad who loved him. He had a younger brother who loved him and looked up to him. He had a lot of friends who loved him and enjoyed spending time with him. And many people were left asking, why? Why did this happen? God, why did you allow this to happen? Brothers and sisters, this is a hard reality. As followers of Jesus, we are not immune to accidents. Our faith in Christ does not preclude us from sudden injury or even sudden death. Even Christians with extraordinary faith can suffer sudden harm in seemingly random accidents. On July 31st of 2016, tragedy struck a young family who were driving through Nebraska from Minneapolis on their way to Colorado to receive training to be missionaries. In an article from August 5th of 2016, World News reported this. This weekend, members and friends of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis will gather for an event nearly unimaginable a week ago. The funeral service for a family of five killed in a car accident on their way to train for missionary service to Japan. Jameson and Catherine Pauls, both 29, died with their children last Sunday morning when a truck driver rammed into their minivan on a Nebraska highway. The impact killed Jameson, Catherine, and their children, Ezra, three, Violet, 23 months, and Calvin, two and a half months old. Jameson maintained a blog entitled For the Joy of Japan, chronicling the family's progress toward missionary service. He explained why they had chosen a country where less than 2% of the population is Christian. He wrote, 
It just seems fitting to go to the place where there are the most people without sufficient witness to the gospel and all its awesomeness. The article concluded, the family had hoped to arrive on the field in October. Did you know that the Japanese people of Japan are either the largest or second largest unreached people group in the world? Did you know that most people in Japan have never read or heard a single verse from scripture? Did you know that many people in Japan have never met a Christian? Did you know that many people in Japan have no frame of reference when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ? And here was a family who, who were uprooting their lives to move to this country for the good of these people, to serve these people, to share Christ, and to spread the gospel where there is a tremendous need for the gospel. And yet before they could arrive in country, their lives were suddenly taken in a tragic accident. Why? Why would God allow this to happen? It is hard to understand why these things happen. And we can't predict when tragedy will come again. We need to understand that sudden and unexpected tragedy is part of the reality in living, of living in a world ruined by sin. We live in a, a world that is ruined by our sin and our rebellion. And everyone is subject to the consequences of sin in this life, on this earth, in its present form. We need to understand this not because it will lessen the pain when tragedy strikes. Having an understanding of this is not going to suddenly make you free from any pain when something goes bad. But it is important for us to understand this so that we will not become disillusioned and hard-hearted when tragedy hits. You see, if we wrongly believe that following Jesus means that it's all smooth sailing from here, that we're all, we're all only going to be blessed, that only good things are going to happen to us, then we will become disillusioned when tragedy strikes. We will be tempted to be angry with God, to, to blame Him, to distance ourselves from God. Whereas if we understand that the world we live in is ruined by sin and our rebellion against God, that we're all subject to the consequences of sin, then when tragedy hits, we will know that we need to not withdraw from God, but we need to press into him. We will know that he is the only one who can comfort us. He is the only one who can sustain us. He is the only one who can get us through. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand this so that we press into the Lord in times of trouble. We see the reality of pain. We also see the reality of uncertainty. The preacher said, you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. He also said, you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. He said, you do not know the work of God who makes everything, and you do not know which will prosper in regard to the seed that was sown. He made clear that there are many things that are, that are out of our control, and we live in a world of human uncertainty. The preacher is trying to impress on us our limitations. 
We don't understand how everything works. We don't know what is going to happen next. We cannot predict the future. All of the best plans we can make can be thwarted or undone. We need to humbly accept that there is one God and we are not him. If you skip ahead hundreds of years to the New Testament, we read something very similar in the book of James. In James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, we read, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. James affirms what the preacher says in Ecclesiastes regarding our limitations of what we can produce and what we can predict. Why is this important? It is important because it leads us to repent of our pride and arrogance and have a right perspective of ourselves and our lives. Arrogance, boasting, and pride is evil. Scripture makes clear to us that we have no reason to be arrogant. We have no reason to be prideful. We have no reason to boast in ourselves. We cannot guarantee results. We cannot predict the future. We don't know what tomorrow will bring, and we are a mist. We are here for a little while, and then we are gone. Do you see how sinfully skewed our perspectives of ourselves are when we are prideful? Who do we think we are? Why in the world do we think more highly of ourselves than we ought? Why are we so confident in our own abilities? Brothers and sisters, our perspectives on ourselves are tainted by sin, and thus God teaches us in his word that we are limited. In light of this, we need to hum humble ourselves before the Lord. We need to acknowledge that he is sovereign, and we are not. We need, to, we need to acknowledge that he is in control and we are not. We need to acknowledge that he knows the future and we do not. We need to acknowledge he is the only one who can accomplish all of his purposes. A growing awareness of our limits ought to drive us to humility and fuel our worship. It ought to drive us to humility as we understand that we are utterly incapable of guaranteeing anything we are incapable of knowing what's going to happen tomorrow. Our lives are short. We will soon be forgotten. But it also ought to fuel our worship. As we consider our limitations, it should remind us of the greatness of our God. He is sovereign. He is eternal. He is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He's the one who knows all things. He's the one who sees all things. He's the one who knows the beginning and the end. He is the one who accomplishes all of his purposes. He is mighty. He is glorious. There is no one like him. As we reflect on our limitations, we ought to worship the one who is awesome. Accidents happen unexpectedly, causing great pain. We are limited in our ability to produce certain results and limited in our ability to know what is going to happen next. We are a mist. So what is the point? We should just throw in the towel, right? No, that is not the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. In spite of the reality of pain, in spite of our limitations in producing and predicting, and in spite of the fact that we are a mist there is still 
value in applying wisdom and taking action. The preacher expresses this by condemning folly and commending wisdom. He condemns the way the fool is careless with his words. He said the lips of a fool consume him because the beginning of his words are foolish and the end of his talk is evil madness. Moreover, he talks a lot about things he really doesn't know about. According to the wisdom literature, carelessness with words is one of the defining characteristics of a fool. Haven't we all said something that we regret? Haven't we all said something that we wish we could take back? Haven't we all said something careless that has caused harm? God warns us strongly through the wisdom literature to not be careless with our words. We also see how foolishness makes work more difficult. The preacher said if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. The fool doesn't recognize how to work smarter and harder. Doesn't take the actions necessary to make the work go more smoothly. In verse 11, he may have been condemning slackness. He said, if the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Now this is admittedly a little bit hard to understand. I don't know any snake charmers. I'm reluctant to Google snake charmer. I don't know what other ads are going to pop up. Don't want that in my browser history. But what he may have been saying is that the skill of the snake charmer is of no use if he waits until it's too late. If the snake charmer waits to uh, charm the snake until after it's bitten somebody, then really his skills are of no value. He may have been making a related point when he said, through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Sloth, laziness, slackness, putting off until tomorrow what you ought to do today is costly. The, pre the preacher also warns against procrastination in chapter 11, verse 4, where he wrote, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. In other words, if you are waiting for the perfect conditions in order to take action, you might be waiting a very long time. The fool also suffers from his failure to gain basic knowledge. His work wearies him because he fails to learn the things that are somewhat obvious and accessible to everyone. In verse 15, he said, the toil of a fool wearies him for he does not know the way to the city. Everybody knows the way to the city. Everybody knows you take a right at the bush, and then take a left at the rock, and then you get to the city. Everybody knows that. It's common knowledge. The fool doesn't know this, so his work takes longer. And the final way that foolishness is condemned in our passage is where the preacher describes the costliness of foolishness among rulers. The people suffer when their king is immature and irresponsible. When a, when a ruler or leader is more concerned with satisfying his own appetite than serving the people the people are the ones who are worse off. The preacher condemns foolishness because foolishness is costly. We also see that applying wisdom and taking action is commendable. Unlike the fool, the wise man chooses his words carefully and uses his words in a beneficial way that brings favor. He is also very careful regarding speaking ill of someone, especially someone in authority. He makes the point the end of chapter 10, that you simply never know who is going to hear what you say and pass it along. 
Brothers and sisters, we will do well to be careful with our words and use them in a way that is good and beneficial. If we need any more motivation, we need, we need only consider what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 through 37, where we read, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. We will give an account for the words that we speak. This ought to put the fear of God in us. It ought to cause us to be careful with our words and motivate, them to, motivate us to use our words wisely. And as followers of Jesus, we want to be especially intentional to use our words to build others up. Let me ask you, how do you use your words? Are you known for complaining, grumbling, sarcasm? Do you use your words to argue, put others down? Or do you use your words to give life, to encourage, to strengthen? Do you use your words intentionally to build others up? Do you use your words to spread the knowledge and glory of God? Do you use your words to spur others on in their faith? How are you using your words? The book of Ecclesiastes, in particular, and the scriptures in, in the whole, urge us and caution us regarding how we use our words. Let us take this time to reflect on this. Let's consider this. Let's think about this. Let's not leave here today without taking time to reflect on how we use our words. May we be careful with our words, and may we use our words for good. In chapter 10, verse 10, we see that wisdom also helps us to be successful in our work. Regarding the axe, regarding failing to sharpen the axe, before chopping, we read that the wise person succeeds, meaning the wise person takes the time to do the things necessary in order to be successful. The wise person sharpens the ax ahead of time before chopping, knowing that his labor will go much better. So the wise person works smarter and understands the role of money. The preacher said, bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. That's one of those verses that cause you to do a double take. I'm sorry, what? Money answers everything? I did not know this. But I don't think it's so much a philosophical statement declaring that money is the answer to all of our problems so much as it is a practical statement explaining that you need money to buy things such as bread and wine. And the wise person understands this. The wise person understands the role of money. Money serves a practical purpose. We are called to be wise with our money and use it in a, in a wise manner. And we see this also in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, where the preacher said, Cast your bread upon the waters, for, if you, for you will find it after many days. And give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. The meaning of these verses is a little obscure for us today, but many scholars believe this is a reference to engaging in maritime trade, with bread referring to any kind of commodity. In other words, Solomon is saying, engage in trade or engage in business or make an investment, and even though it may be risky, you will likely receive a return. He is commending taking action, even when there is risk involved. 
And in verse 2, where he said, give a portion to seven or eight because you don't know what disaster is coming, he was likely recommending that it is wise to spread out your investments. Saying, you don't know what disaster is coming, so don't put all your eggs in one basket. It might be the equivalent of a financial advisor telling you to diversify your portfolio. In 11.6, he again urges us to take action. He said, in the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, whether both alike will be good. Bible scholar Tremper Longman writes, though he uses agrarian language here, sowing your seed, he likely intends this to stand for all human activity. Solomon said, sow your seed in the morning and sow it in the evening because you don't know which seed is going to produce. He was saying, take lots of action. Sow lots of seed. The more action you take, the better chances that you'll have good results. Again, he is commending wisdom and action. Do not be foolish and do not procrastinate. Instead, apply wisdom and take action. On the one hand, we live in a world where we can't be certain of what will happen. We live in a world where accidents happen. We live in a world where we experience pain and where we are very limited in our ability to produce and predict. But in spite of these truths, we are still called upon to apply wisdom and take action. During his time on earth, Jesus often taught in parables. In the parable that Pastor Sam read before the sermon, we heard the account of the three servants and how they conducted their business in their master's absence. Before departing, the master entrusted them with money. He gave them talents. Talents was a talents were a monetary unit. So he gave one five, he gave one two, he gave one one. And the one who had five went to work. He took action. His actions may have involved some risk, but he applied wisdom and made a good return on his investment. Similarly, the one with two took action, maybe some risks, but applied wisdom and had a good return. The one with one took the route of Ron Swanson and buried his money in the ground where it was of no value, where he earned no interest. The master condemned this servant. He referred to him as a wicked and slothful servant. But the other two servants went to work and took action, and though their action, again, likely involved risk, they applied wisdom and saw a return on their investments. And did you notice they received the exact same response? They both received the response from their master, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a little, you'll be entrusted with more. Enter into the joy of your master. The one who received five and made five more did not receive a greater commendation than the one who received two and made two more. Why? Because they were both faithful with what they had received. There was no point for them to compare themselves to each other. It was no, there was no point in the one receiving two being jealous of the one who received five, and there was no point in the one who received five thinking himself to be superior than the one who received two. There was no point in that. That would be a waste of time. Why? Because all that their master wanted them to do was be faithful with what they had received. Well done, good and faithful servants. They were faithful with what the Lord had given them. They applied wisdom. They took action. 
Brothers and sisters, the Lord entrusts us with all kinds of good things. He entrusts us with money, material possessions. He entrusts us with jobs. He entrusts us with relationships. He entrusts us with church family. He entrusts us with all kinds of good things and calls upon us to be faithful stewards of these things that he has graciously given to us. But one of the most precious things he has entrusted to us is the gospel. The message of reconciliation. The good news that God is saving sinners such as you and me. He has entrusted to us the gospel. And if you don't know what we mean when we say gospel, we're talking about the good news that God, who created all things, saves sinners such as you and me who deserve hell. You see, God created us with a good and glorious purpose to know him, to obey him, to love him, to enjoy him, and to glorify him. He created us for this created us for this wonderful, incredible purpose, but all of us have sinned against him. All of us have rebelled against him. All of us have gone our own way. We've rejected his purposes for our lives, and because we've rejected him and his purposes for our lives, we deserve hell. We deserve judgment. If God only gives us what we deserve, we will all spend eternity in hell. But God, who is rich in mercy, rich in kindness, has provided a way for sinners such as you and me, to be saved. And he did so at great cost to himself. He did so by providing his son, Jesus Christ, as a substitute and a sacrifice to take away our sins. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He lived a perfectly sinless life. He obeyed God perfectly, which we have all failed to do. And then though he was without sin, he died a brutal death in our place as a substitute, taking the punishment that we deserve in our place, as a sacrifice to appease the wrath of God on our behalf. So now, everyone who repents of their sins and believes in Jesus will be saved. If you're not a Christian, we want you to know this. Our greatest desire for you is to know Jesus. We hope that you will understand that God made you and that though you have sinned against him, he has provided a way for you to be reconciled to him. He has provided a way for you to be restored to him. And that's through his son, Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, our greatest hope for you is that you will repent of your sins, believe in Jesus, and be saved. This is the gospel. And brothers and sisters, this is the gospel that has been entrusted to us. So the question we have to answer is, how are we stewarding the gospel? Our master has entrusted what is precious and valuable to us. Are we being wise? Are we taking action? Are we intentionally looking for opportunities to minister the gospel to our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we intentionally looking for opportunities to share the gospel with those who are not yet Christians? I want to encourage you to do so. Who can you encourage in the faith? How can you encourage someone according to the gospel? How can you build a brother or sister up in their faith? Whom has God sovereignly placed in your life that's not a Christian? Their best opportunity to hear the gospel is probably you. Will you pray for them? Will you look for the opportunities to share Christ with them? Will you take bold actions? If you don't know what actions to take, let me suggest one for you. 
If there's someone in your life who is not a Christian, I would encourage you to ask them if they'd be willing to meet with you, maybe over coffee, to study the Bible. You'd be surprised at who will say yes. Maybe they'll say no, and that's okay. You can continue to pray for them. But you might be surprised at who says yes. You might be surprised at who's willing to meet with you to open up the Gospel of Mark and to learn about Jesus. They might not be willing to come to church on a Sunday morning, but they may very well be likely to meet with you over coffee and to learn about Jesus. And that's an opportunity for you just to open the Bible and let God's Word do its powerful work. Take a bold step. Maybe you have another idea. Inviting a non-Christian into your home. Providing warm hospitality. Inviting someone to join with us on a Sunday morning so that they can hear the gospel preached. What bold actions are you taking? How are you stewarding what Christ has entrusted to you? And as we are reflecting on this, we must consider our motivation. What is our motivation? Our motivation is our master. The one we serve. If we are ever lacking in our motivation to take action and apply wisdom, then we need to remind ourselves what he has done for us. Our master is the one who took decisive action for our sake. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, we read, Though he was in the form of God, he did, not he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. These are the actions that he took on our behalf. He humbled himself for our sake. He became a servant, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the glorious one, humbled himself and became a servant for our sake, becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what he has done for us. And for those of us who have trusted in him for, for our salvation, we are called to respond with grateful and joyful hearts. We are to respond to what he has done for us in saving us, in calling us into his family. We are to respond with grateful and joyful hearts by serving him willingly, eagerly, and by applying wisdom and taking action. We don't apply wisdom and take action to earn anything. We do it because of what he has already done for us. We are his. We belong to him. He is our master who gave up all those things for our sake. And now that we belong to him, we are called to use whatever time we have here on earth, whether it be many days or a few days, to serve him and bring glory to his name. So with grateful hearts, Let's be people who eagerly and willingly serve Jesus, applying wisdom and taking action. Let's pray.